All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Monday, so we are standing in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton, your guide, as we look at Apology Article 15 on the traditions in the church. And this whole article goes about the idea of, are there things that are not commanded in Scripture but are still good things? Or does everything that is not strictly commanded by book, chapter, and verse in the Bible need to be done away with? Because it's exactly what the adversaries describe the Lutherans as in the confutation. So Melanchthon takes this up. We'll look at it this week and next week to see exactly what the Reformers are saying and what we as Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. So this week we're going to look at paragraphs 1 through 26. And it's very straightforward, very much a, this is truly what we believe. And if you don't understand that, there's a problem with you, not with us. So we continue our look in the confessional corner by looking at our article 15 verses 1 or paragraphs 1 through 5. In Article 15, the adversaries accept the first part in which they say that ecclesiastical rights are to be kept that can be observed without sin and are beneficial in the church for peace and good order. They completely condemn the second part in which we say that human traditions set up to reconcile God to merit grace and make satisfaction for sins are contrary to the gospel. In the confession itself, we spoke long enough about traditions such as the distinction of meats. Yet certain things should be briefly reviewed here. We suppose that the adversaries would defend human traditions on other grounds. We do not think that this would happen, that they would condemn this article. We do not merit the forgiveness of sins or grace by celebrating human traditions. Since this article has been condemned, we have an easy and straightforward case. The adversaries are now openly Judaizing. Acts 15.1. They are openly hindering the gospel by the doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1. For scripture calls traditions doctrines of demons when it is taught that religious rites serve to merit the forgiveness of sins and grace. For they are then clouding over the gospel, Christ's benefit, and the righteousness of faith. The gospel teaches that through faith we receive freely for Christ's sake, the forgiveness of sins, and are reconciled to God. The adversaries, on the other hand, appoint another mediator, these traditions. By these they want to gain forgiveness of sins. By these they want to reconcile God's anger. But Christ clearly says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 9. All right, so the response by Melanchthon and the Reformers is very straightforward. We look to Scripture. Now the adversaries are saying that they are openly Judaizing, which the confessions refer to Acts 15.1. You can also go to Galatians and even Colossians, where Paul talks about this even more, about the people who would come into the congregations after he left and try to explain to the people that, no, 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 I don't care what the letter from Acts 15 said from the church in Jerusalem. No, you have to become Jewish before you can be a true Christian. You have to obey the Mosaic law first. And that was where the Pharisees and the Sadducees had their biggest problems with Jesus, is that their traditions that they built up around the Mosaic law 
their extra commandments that they built up as a hedge to keep us away from the Ten Commandments. These things became what was important for God. God doesn't even talk about them. You can't go through the Mosaic Law, whether it's you know just Genesis through Deuteronomy, or go through the entire Old Testament. There is nothing in there like saying that you cannot take a certain number of steps on the Sabbath day, otherwise it's work. It never declares what work is. It just says you shall not work. So then, again, what is it? That's left up to us. That's left up to us to know that it is for our benefit, the third commandment teaches us, that we set aside time to listen to God in his word. And that doesn't have to be on Sunday. We at our Savior offer a Thursday morning matin service. It is It was begun for our homeschool families, but it is open for anyone who, especially now as we get through this time of the year where we are usually suffering from one virus or another that don't want to be in the big crowds, well, we have less than 10 people every Sunday or every Thursday for matins. Just come on in. And if we hit over 20, well, I mean, we still have plenty of room in the sanctuary to spread out. There's, But the thing is, yeah, it's not on Sunday, but you still get to hear the word. You're still setting aside time to listen to God. And that is the important thing. It's not what constitutes work, because that's what becomes the human traditions of things that we can and cannot do. And we see this over and over again, even in the church today, of the things that we can and can't do, especially around Christmas and Easter. Some of the things that just aren't done because, well, we need to do these things because this is the way we've always done them. And even worse, some will honestly fear that God will not accept their Christmas or Easter worship without these things being done. And this could be as simple as what color foil is around the flowers. It gets ridiculous. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Judaizers, did to the early Christians. Is just made it completely ridiculous with their own things. And the, advers- and the adversaries in the Roman church, no different. Because you had to be in mass for it to count from a certain point to a certain point. If you were not there either time, it did not count. Now, of course, my question is, who's keeping track of that? Is that the person who is there that's like, no, I got here after the starting point, or I got, or I had to leave before we got through the whole uh, liturgy of the Mass? You know, who's, who's keeping up with that? Or is it just something to plague the mind, which is exactly why Jesus calls these things doctrines of demons, is that they are the ones trying to get you to doubt your faithfulness, to doubt your faith in Christ, and to ultimately doubt his faithfulness, because you didn't do things right. And that's exactly what James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem wanted to keep the Gentiles from doing in Acts 15. 
But Melanchthon moves on because he said in the confession, there has been a lot of talk about it. And that's exactly what articles 21 through 28 were, were a lot of traditions that were brought in that needed to be taken out. So we go on paragraph six through 12. We have already discussed at length that people are justified through faith when they believe that they have reconciled God, not because of our works, but freely for Christ's sake. It is certain that this is the doctrine of the gospel because Paul preaches clearly, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now these men say that people merit the forgiveness of sins by these human celebrations. What else is this than to appoint another justifier, a mediator other than Christ? Paul says to the Galatians, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Chapter 5, verse 4. This means if you hold that they are obeying, that by obeying the law you merit righteousness before God, Christ will benefit you nothing. Why do they need Christ who hold that they are righteous by their obeying the law? God has presented Christ with the promise that because of this mediator and not because of our righteousness, he wishes to be gracious to us. But these men hold that God is reconciled and gracious because of the traditions, not because of Christ. Therefore, they take the honor of mediator away from Christ. So far as this matter is concerned, there is not any difference between our traditions and Moses' ceremonies. Paul condemns Moses' ceremonies, Galatians 3, 10 through 12 just as he condemns traditions because they are regarded as works that merit righteousness before God. So the office of Christ and the righteousness of faith are clouded over. With the law and traditions removed, he argues that the forgiveness of sins has been promised not because of our works, but freely because of Christ, if only we receive it through faith. For the promise is not received except through faith. Since we receive the forgiveness of sins through faith, since we have a merciful God for Christ's sake by faith, it is an error in sin to declare that we merit the forgiveness of sins because of these observances. If anyone should say that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins, but that those who have already been justified by these traditions merit grace, Paul again replies, Christ is then a servant of sin, Galatians 2.17. The same would be true if we were to hold that after justification, we were not counted righteous for Christ's sake, but we should first, by other observances, merit that we are counted righteous. Likewise, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified, Galatians 3.15. We should not add to God's covenant, for God promises that he will be merciful to us for Christ's sake. Nor should we add that we must first get such merit in order to be regarded and accepted and righteous through these observances. Melanchthon goes a lot through Galatians here, and it's very important because this is exactly what the Galatians were going through. They were being told that they had to uphold these certain traditions, whether it was to merit justification in the first place or to merit grace after justification. That, okay, Jesus took care of it up to here, but now, of course, you have to then take care of everything else afterwards. And this is the great problem with Roman Catholic theology, especially with baptism, is that baptism in their mind destroys original sin, takes away everything prior to, but you have to work off the rest of the sins that you commit after baptism through the sacrament of penance by receiving the mass and all these other things. This is what Melanchthon is going against. This is what the reformers are teaching against. This is what we still battle with today, that we have to do these things to prove that we are worthy of Jesus.
let me tell you right now, there is nothing you can do that tells Jesus that you were worthy of him. Because he will turn right around and say, you are not worthy of anything that I have done for you. But I did it anyway. This is why Paul can say, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Didn't die for the people that were good enough. Didn't die for the godly that didn't need him. Didn't die for those who had done everything they can under the law and had kept it perfectly. Because, of course, we have the rich young ruler come up as well. All of these things I have done since my youth. And Jesus tells him to go and sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. Because he puts his trust in his belongings. Jesus goes through the second table of the law there because the man knows that he can't keep the first table because his God is his possessions, which is why he goes away sorrowful. Okay, we pick up in paragraph 13 through uh, 17 with one of Melanchthon's great rhetorical questions. Why do we need a long discussion? And then guess what? He gives us a long discussion because this is exactly what is going to be from the next letter all the way through the rest of our reading this week and then into next week as to this long discussion that we don't need, but yeah, we're going to have it anyway because we don't need it, but you do. He goes on to say, No tradition was set up by the Holy Fathers for the purpose of meriting the forgiveness of sins or righteousness. Rather, they were instituted for the sake of good order in the church and for the sake of peace. When anyone wants to set up certain works to merit the forgiveness of sins or righteousness, how will he know that these works please God since there is no testimony of God's word? How, without God's command and word, will he make people certain of God's will? Doesn't God forbid people everywhere in the prophets from setting up peculiar rites of worship without his commandment? In Ezekiel it is written, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. If people are allowed to set up religious rites and through these rites merit grace, the religious rites of all the pagans will have to be approved. The rites instituted by Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, 26-33, and by others, apart from the law, will have to be approved. What difference does it make? If we have been allowed to institute religious rites that help merit grace or righteousness, why were the pagans and the Israelites not allowed the same? The religious rites of the pagans and the Israelites were rejected for the very reason that they believed they merited forgiveness of sins and righteousness by these rites. Yet they did not know the righteousness of faith. Finally, where are we made certain that rights instituted by men justify without God's command, since nothing can be affirmed of God's will without his word? What if God does not approve these services? How, therefore, do the adversaries affirm that they justify? Without God's command and testimony, this cannot be affirmed. Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, Romans 14.23. Since these services have no testimony of God's word, conscience must doubt if they please God. He makes a very important point. If we have to accept that the Pope and the cardinals and the archbishops and all of that can set up rites that merit forgiveness of sins, then we have to accept the golden calves. 
house of Jeroboam, Aaron's golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the bronze serpent which was taken in and worshipped, all the Baals, the Asherahs, the Greek and Roman and Norse and Babylonian gods. Basically, if we can merit grace by works that, that by traditions that we set up ourselves, then there is no need for Jesus. There is no need for Christianity. There is no need for any of it because everybody gets to go to heaven because then nobody's rights can be taken away and told to be demonic. But God doesn't work like that. God, through the prophets, goes and talks about worshiping the Baals over and over again, being sinful, worshiping the Asherah and all the other Babylonian gods as we get into the captivity, which is why he tells Ezekiel to not follow in the footsteps of their fathers and their ancestors, not worshiping their gods, but worshiping him. And the problem is they can't do it. They can't do it because they don't want to listen to his word. They want to do things that make them feel good, that make them feel important. And a lot of times, listening to God's word, telling us what horrible, rotten, sinful people we are, does not make us feel important. It makes us feel small. And we do not like to feel small. So if we allow some, we have to allow all. And so he says, starting off this long discussion that we don't need, no rite, no ceremony, no tradition was set up by the Holy Fathers, whether it's the apostles or the great church fathers throughout the early church, except for those that were for good order and for peace in the congregation. That's why we have traditions, for good order. Why is it that we have the liturgy laid out like we do? So it will flow, so that we're not just jumping around and we're on page 184 for a couple of minutes, then we're on page 217, and then we're back on page 05, and you know, on and on and on, just all the way through with no sense of order, no sense of decorum. No, no, no. We do it because God wants all things to be done in good order and peaceably, especially when it comes to the worship of his congregation, which is exactly what this all entails, is what makes worship. Is it what God has commanded or what we have added on to it and kind of supplanted with God's stuff? We continue on in paragraphs 18 through 26, finishing off our reading for this week. Again, you got to love Melanchthon. Why do we need words on a subject so clear? That's the beginning of paragraph 18. We're going through paragraph 26, and there's still another 20-something paragraphs after that we'll talk about next week. Why do we need words? Let me give you words. If the adversaries defend these human services as meriting justification, grace, and the forgiveness of sins, they simply set up the kingdom of Antichrist. The kingdom of Antichrist is a new service of God devised by human authority rejecting Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Just as the kingdom of Muhammad has services and works through which it wishes to be justified before God. It does not hold that people are freely justified before God through faith for Christ's sake. 
So the papacy will also be a part of the kingdom of the Antichrist if it defends human services as justifying in this way. For honor is taken away from Christ when they teach that we are not justified freely through faith, for Christ's sake, but by such services. This is especially true when they teach that such services are not only useful for justification, but are also necessary, as they maintain in Article 7. They are There they condemn us for saying that for true unity of the church, it is not necessary that rights instituted by human beings should be alike everywhere. Daniel 11.38 indicates that new human services will be the very form and basic principle of the kingdom of Antichrist. He says this, He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver with precious stones. Here Daniel describes new services because he says the fathers were ignorant of the God that shall be worshipped. Although the Holy Fathers themselves had both rites and traditions, they did not maintain that these are useful or necessary for justification. They did not cloud over Christ's glory and office, but taught that we are justified by faith for Christ's sake and not for the sake of these human services. The Fathers celebrated human rights for the body's benefit. For example, by such rites the people would know what time they should gather, so that for the sake of example all things might be done in order and properly in the churches, 1 Corinthians 14.40, and that the common people might receive a sort of training. Distinctions of times and the variety of rites helps in reminding the common people. The fathers maintained these rites for these reasons. We also conclude it is proper for these reasons to keep traditions or good customs. We are greatly surprised that the adversaries argue for another design of traditions, that they merit the forgiveness of sins, grace, and justification. What else is this than to honor God with gold and silver with precious stones, as Daniel 11.38 says, that is to hold that God becomes reconciled by a variety of clothing, ornaments, and by similar rites, which are countless in human traditions. Paul writes to the Colossians that traditions have an appearance of wisdom in chapter 2, verse 23. Indeed they have. Good order is very fitting in the church and is for this reason necessary. Human reason, because it does not understand the righteousness of faith, naturally imagines that such works justify people because they reconcile God. Among the Israelites, the common people thought this, and by this opinion increased such ceremonies. Among us, ceremonies have grown in the monasteries. Human reason also thinks that this about bodily exercises such as fast. Although the purpose of these bodily exercises is to hold the flesh in check, reason falsely adds that they are services that justify. As Thomas writes, fasting avails for the extinguishing and the prevention of guilt. These are Thomas's words. The look of wisdom and righteousness in such works tricks people. The examples of the saints are added. When people want to imitate these, they imitate for the most part the outward exercises. They do not imitate their faith. We'll get back to this later. After this look of wisdom and righteousness has deceived people, then countless evils follow. The gospel about the righteousness of faith in Christ is clouded over, and empty confidence in such works succeeds. Then God's commandments are clouded over. These human works assume the title of a perfect and spiritual life. They are preferred more than the works of God's commandments, works of one's own calling, the administration of the state, the management of a family, married life, and the bringing up of children. Compared with those ceremonies, the latter are judged to be ungodly so that they are exercised by many with doubting consciences. For it is known that many have left the administration of the state and married life to welcome these human ceremonies as better and holier. All right. We go back to if the Roman theologians, the adversaries want to keep up with this, 
all they are doing is proving that they have set up the kingdom of Antichrist in the midst of the church, which is exactly what Second Thessalonians 2 talks about, is that the Antichrist will raise up himself in the church. And that's exactly what Melanchthon goes through, what Luther will go through in the small cult articles, what the confessions continually teach about the office of the papacy is that that office, with all of its power that has been given to it over the centuries and all of the things that it has set up on its own authority, are nothing but the workings of the Antichrist. And this all goes back to Daniel 11.38. And then we talk about these traditions have an appearance of wisdom. I mean, that is what intrigues us in the first place. Is it, well, it looks like it should work. Well, a lot of things look like they should work, but don't. Trust me, I've tried a lot of them, and there are some things that look like they should, but they don't. In fact, a lot of times they look, they end up working backwards of the way they're supposed to. And we talk about fasting in here, and we'll get to that as we talk about what is and isn't a good tradition next week. And in all these things, and when we add the saints to them as well, it's the outward exercises. So this saint has a story of him sitting on a chair on top of a pole for 200 days. Well, what do we do? Well, we go, we set up a pole, we put a chair on top of him, and we sit up there for 200 days. What does it do for us? Well, I'm sure it gives us a strong core because of having to sit there and balance yourself on a pole on a chair, but... What does that do for your justification? Absolutely nothing. And it's not only that these things are considered good, but then they become necessary. And they become better than living a normal life, which is what we have at the end of paragraph 25, is that these finally ultimately built up into the monastery and the convent where the monks and nuns were living a better, more spiritual, better, again, life because they were closer to God. They were devoting themselves to God. And the people who administered the state, who had a family, who ran a farm, who ran a business, all of those things that are out in the world, basically were told, you guys are sinning by doing that and not by being here. Like God doesn't rule over both the left hand and the right hand kingdom. That he doesn't rule over the church and over the physical world. Because even the church, it's like, oh no, we don't need anything that the, you know, we don't need anything we can, you know, self-sufficient, all this. Well, um, the church runs by the offerings. And the offerings come from people having <gasps> jobs out in the real world. Out being a plumber or an architect or a farmer or doing whatever, selling stuff online. Whatever it is, it still comes from there. But God also tells us that we are to be good stewards of what we have. Whether it is from the, te from the temporal world or from the spiritual world. This is why the confessions were written in the first place. We're trying to keep this. But we're also fighting the urge to have only that. Because that's what we're fighting in the human traditions, is that eventually it grew into the fact that 
people weren't going to heaven unless they were in the monastery or the convent. And that's a ridiculous notion. But it makes everybody else who's out there raising their families, running the city or the country or whatever, in doubt that God even listens to them because, well, they're not a monk or a nun. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have some theological degree for God to love you and God to let you into heaven. You simply need to know that Jesus is your Lord, that he died for you, saving you from your sins. And all of this you get freely for his sake. Not by anything you do, not by anything you refrain from doing. And that is the great joy of the gospel, is that it is all about Jesus. All right, that's it for this week. We'll finish up traditions in the church and Melanchthon's talk about it next week. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for standing in the confessional corner with me. Be back later on for Digging Deeper as well as Pro Wrestling America and the Moments Meditation. And as we move into December, wow, it's almost already December, we're also looking ahead to the devotional material around Christmas. So starting the 17th of December, we'll have devotions on the O Antiphons. Then the days of the Christmas season, we will have devotions based on the 12 days of Christmas, keeping our minds on him in whose life, death, and resurrection is our hope for everything that we have in this life and in the life of the world to come. And that is why this podcast exists, to help strengthen you with that notion and that understanding and how it relates to everything else so that you can wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.